Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Jenna Kelly as she explores the lasting psychological and emotional bonds between individuals. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network and join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. Hello there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly, and I hope this interview finds you well wherever you are listening or watching this today. I am really excited to share this next conversation with you. And I know I say that about all of my guests, but it's really true because I get to sit down and talk with people who are very knowledgeable and willing to share their knowledge and expertise and wisdom and resources with us. So I do that in the deepest of gratitude. And this next conversation is no exception because I get to sit down with Dr. Jean Clinton, who is really a gem in the field of infant and early childhood mental health and attachment and in bringing the brain science into that. Dr. Jean optimistically believes that having a system of compassionate system awareness leadership, competency-based deep learning and relationally focused education of our children and young people is the road to a better and sustainable world. Good at learning means good at life. Dr. Clinton has authored her first book, Love Builds Brains, which is also a gem in books because she brings so much just authenticity to this with the stories um, in her book and really taking the brain science and making it digestible and understandable. And that's what she's all about. She's also a clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University, Division of Child Psychiatry in Ontario, Canada. She was also appointed as an education advisor to the Premier of Ontario and the Minister of Education from 2014 to 2018. She's a trainer in Dr. Bruce Perry's Neurosequential Model in Education. She's worked intensively with Michael Fullen and his new pedagogies for deep learning team. She is also a member of the Mind Up Scientific Advisory Board, as well as a Mind Up for Families advisor. Dr. Jean is a fellow of the Child Trauma Academy and has been a zero to three Academy fellow since 2013. She's been working as a consultant to children and youth mental health programs, child welfare, and primary care for over 35 years. Her special interest lies in brain development and the crucial role relationships belong belonging and connectedness play. And that's really what we talk about in this interview. As you can see, she's got a wealth of knowledge and experience as a child psychiatrist um, working for over 35 years. And so we talk about the brain science and how that relates to attachment, both in the early years and in the mysterious adolescent brain and how things like the pandemic have impacted that, what our policymakers need to know. She just sucked me in. I was so um, just enthralled and engaged in this interview. And so I really hope that you all enjoy and learn as much as I did. Enjoy. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for 
offer videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Hello, Dr. Jean, and welcome. I am so excited and honored to be joining you in conversation today. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Jenna. Really looking forward to our conversation. Yes, me as well. It's kind of been a long time in the making. I know we've had a lot of emails back and forth and we did a pre-chat and it's finally here. It's really happening. And the reason I'm so excited is because you really speak the language of attachment and brain development and neuroscience and building resilience and infant early childhood mental health. I mean, there's so many rabbit holes that we could go down, but... But before we do, I'd also like to start with you, and um, I would invite you to please share an attachment memory that feels really important to you and to your work. What comes up for you? Well, you know, it's um, there are a couple of attachment memories that come to mind. Um, one is a, a kind of weird one with my um, uh, with my partner, my uh, my husband. Um, he once had to have um, an MRI done, and at that time he was a pretty large guy, and um, uh, he had been a bit worried about fitting in the machine. Also, he had to put his arm up in a very uncomfortable position, and it was really hard for him. And what he did is he thought about me being outside, knowing that I was there. So um, even as I'm describing it again, I'm, I'm tearing up a little. So I think that is an example of of um, of, of real attachment um, in the adult in the adult sphere. Um, in yeah. the um, it, with my kids and uh, Jenna, as you know, uh, I have five uh, children, age twenty nine to thirty nine, and I have uh, eight grandchildren now. Um, five months to seven years of age so you can imagine our life mm-hmm. uh, and and so i have many many memories of my children uh coming to me with delight about uh, what they've done so the, the the delight part of attachment and one of them was my oldest son when he was about oh uh two and a half or three he had peeled some wallpaper off in the bathroom when he had been sitting doing his business and when <laughs> i came in to help him he said look mama a D, a D. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the delight um, of attachment. But in 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 other in other ways, um, when my my one of my uh, one of my kids was injured, they kind of kept everything in until I arrived, mm-hmm. and the relief. The turning to me um, uh, in that moment just was a very, very, very special, very, very special moment. Now, mind you, it was when my kid had a head injury, so maybe it wasn't. No, only joking. <laughs> he had gone off, I think. But uh, so many times when the kids have been in need, and it's very clear they're turning to me, has been really important um, and 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 lovely, lovely memories. Mm. Yes, you represent such a secure base for your husband and your children and grandchildren. So thank you for sharing that with us. So Dr. Jean, you're known as 
knowledge, the knowledge translator. And I would love for you to tell us why. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, I, I'm a knowledge translator. I think there are other people out there. Uh, what I mean by that, and, and uh, it was somebody commented uh, to me about that uh, many years ago, and I said, oh, that's exactly it. Uh, so I take the science of attachment, um, the science, of regulation uh, for, and uh, the science, uh, as I'm thinking as well, of bullying uh, research. And I think about ways that I would be able to communicate those sometimes pretty dense and difficult concepts into ways that are uh, accessible you know, that people can reach and understand. And and so that's the translation of it. I sometimes joke and say that um, I'm a magpie, that I'd love to steal lovely, bright, shiny ideas and bring them into my own nest and, uh, and then translate them in a way that other people uh, can understand them. Yeah, so that's that's the knowledge translation, and uh, it, it's so important for me to to think about um, as a child, infant, child, and adolescent psychiatrist to think about being upstream. So to be thinking about, so I spent many many years um, feeling that I was downstream in a rushing river of kids with mental health problems and families with difficulties. And uh, I would always be thinking, if only, if only something had happened earlier, if only people had reached out and knew the importance of relationship and attachment. And so a number of years ago, I decided that uh, and through a mentor who said, Jean, we need to prevent the kids from falling in the river in the first place. And so knowledge translation is a huge part of that concept of me being an upstreamist. Now, mm -hmm. periodically, I'm an extremist as well, particularly with government. But <laughs> liking to be upstream and knowledge translation is a big part of that. Well, I'm sure we'll get on that soapbox a little bit later with, with what can policymakers do, but they need knowledge translated as well. And it, it's so important because like you said, there is so much going on with the science, but if people don't understand what we're talking about, then it, it never leads to any meaningful action either. So oh, I'm, I'm so, so glad. It's also true. You know, one of the, one of the, um, um, one of the uh, feel good moments as a knowledge translator for me was when I had the great opportunity of, of working with some of Canada's judges. And I would, because I felt for a number of reasons, one, it's really super important. Well, one, I was invited, but the other is it's super important for judges to be aware of what toxic stress and instability does to the early relationships mm -hmm. and to infant and early childhood mental health. So I often talk when, when I'm talking and I talk about every child should have at least one adult whose eyes light up when they enter the room. And then one of the, um, one of the judges uh, from uh, um, I think uh, Alberta, Canada said, um, 
I am now going to write in my orders for these little ones that the people who are there need to find at least one adult whose eyes light up for them. Mm. So that, that, you know, that that was a moment of thinking, you know, not seeing so many kids because I'm on the road so much. This is making it worth it. Yes. When we know better, we can do better. Mm-hmm. That was I love that, Maya Angelou, yeah. Mm-hmm. So was that the motivation for your book, Love Builds Brains, which is an amazing resource full of knowledge that you've translated and you've used stories and 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 the way you share knowledge in that book, I think is is such a beautiful example of of how you how you are truly a knowledge translator. So was that the motivation for this book? Tell us more about the book. Well, yeah, well, you know, uh, thank you for mentioning the book, Jenna. It's um, I have, uh, uh, as you know, I have a very, very uh, busy, eclectic life with the, the family. And, uh, you know, people had said to me, oh, Jean, you need to write a book. Other people who don't come and hear you need to be able to hear what you're pulling together from other scientists and how you do it. So I'd been hearing that for a while. And then one of my dear, dear friends, Dr. Joyce Bellis, um, uh, who heard me in Hamilton and immediately got in touch with me. She was a divinity professor at the time at Mc master but she has a small uh, printing company and she said Jean we're going to do it so what she actually she and her wonderful husband Ken what they actually did was um, record the number of talks that I did for each of the chapters and then Joyce and I got together and sat with that transcript and made it into a book. We spent hours and hours together relishing in each other's company. You know, I'm strongly attached to my dear friend. And that's how the book came about. My friend saying, this has to be heard and read by others. So I'm really, I'm very pleased that I actually got to do it. I'm planning this December to make it into an audio book uh, so that's going to be uh, that's going to be fun lots of people now have said now Jean you have to make an audio book so we can listen to it when we're walking or in the car mm-hmm. or, or or whatever um and I'm I'm quite thrilled that a number of early childhood educators and education programs are using the book um either for the, the child care center or groups doing book studies and we've developed a study guide recently um uh, or uh, they're incorporating it into their education of ECEs. So I tell you, it's so weird, Jenna, when I do a presentation to ECEs, all these people want to have selfies done with me. <laughs> so we do that. And, you know, they, they they say, oh, I studied you in school. I did a project on you. And, you know, I go, what? I'm just I'm just I think of myself just as me, but yeah, it's um um it was a great process and I'm I'm really thrilled that it's reaching out to others, changing their views of how they interact with kids, little ones in a very positive way. Yes. 
I can see that having the book having broad application and as humble as we try to be in our work, you are a big deal, Dr. Jean, and you are you are spreading so much wisdom that that people need to hear. And like I said, in a in an easy digestible way. Um, but speaking of the early years, there's so much emphasis on that in the book and in your work. Um, why is that such a critical period for healthy child and brain development? And what role does attachment play in this? Mm, well, so my journey to studying uh, the early years began, oh, let me see how old is Kathleen saw, so about 37, 36 or 37 years ago when I was finishing up my residency program, my training in psychiatry and child psychiatry. And one the, the place where I was working really wanted to start a preschool psychiatry program, looking at what is the, the issues, what happens to children who are zero to six in the world. So this is well, 1986 or thereabouts. And at that time, we knew from really good observations that scientists had done, uh, like John Bowlby and others, that when infants were separated from their parents, when they were not well looked after by their parents or not responded to by their parents, that was Mary Ainsworth's work, that the children protested in some kind of way. And so that's, that, that was the beginning of thinking about attachment. But we did not have the neuroscience at that time. And so... Uh, a number, so I continued to do my work as a preschool and uh, um, psychiatrist developing the, uh, the program here at uh, um, McMaster Children's Hospital now. And um, I, I encountered, let's say, um, uh, Dr. Fraser Mustard, who had actually been my dean at medical school. But um, he was asked to write a report for the premier at the time, it was a guy called Mike Harris. And this is uh, something that, um, that he uh, brought people together to look at what do we know about the science behind why children really need to have significant adults attend to them in the earliest years. So he pulled together neuroscience, child development, social economic development. He pulled together a whole lot of science in his study, the early years, and this would have been in 1999 or 90, anywhere around there. And I met him and was completely changed because he not only was saying, you know, we have to pay attention to the early years, but he was bringing together the why of it. And so then I started, you know, I heard Bruce Perry a number of times. I was blown away by Bruce. And so what we've, what I've learned and we continue to learn in this journey is, and it's different than when I started, is that the brain of little babies 
in utero, so even before they're born, into their early years, and that's, you know, five years of age, six years of age, sometimes even longer, that their brains are not fully formed in terms of all of the interconnections between the big main brain cell, which is called a neuron. So what happens in the early years literally builds the architecture of the brain and the person that that child is going to become. So when I say it builds the architecture, you know, we know that all of the brain cells are in place when a baby is born. But, you know, their their little heads, when they come out, only weigh about one pound. But by the time they're a toddler, it's increased in size to about three pounds. Now, there's a very good reason why um, we deliver babies when their heads are one pound, because it would be not a pretty picture Thank goodness <laughs> to, <for that. laughs> to deliver a three pound baby, but as baby's head. Um, mm-hmm. But um, what, what, so that, you know, and that um, uh, Jay Gould and other scientists have talked about, about that. So what we know then is that babies, what, how the brain grows is not, new neurons, but new connections between those neurons, new synapses, new cells that support that interaction. So this was breakthrough. This was breakthrough to be able to actually see this. You know, of course, they did it in animal studies first. Um, but the, the some of the scientists said, wow, if the brain is born or delivered so early, it means that we we need to create an external womb. If that brain is so immature that it doesn't mature, well, fully, we'll talk a little bit about the adolescent brain, but in those early years, it means we really need to pay attention to how those brains are being sculpted, how they are being built. Because um, what we know from Canadian scientists, a guy called Hebb, was that the neurons, those brain cells that fire together, actually the more they fire, the more they wire up together. So, What does this mean? This means that the experience a baby little one has is building that connection in all parts of their brain as they're being spoken to, their language areas, as they're being read to, read, 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 read to your child because there's six different senses or, or, or different input pathways when you're doing, when you're reading to your child. And what is literally happening is as the repetitive over and over stimulation occurs, that connection and that interconnectivity happens. So what's really cool about that is we used to think that it was genes that determined your brain, your intelligence, all of that kind of stuff. But now we know 
wait a second. And, you know, it's funny, I used to have arguments at uh, my first degree is music. And we would go to the pub, music and philosophy, no less. We would go to the pub and we'd argue what counts more, nature or nurture? Is it mm-hmm. is it genetics or is it the environment? And now we know that, uh, and uh, we didn't know this in 86 and 81, uh, what we now know is that the genes are listening to the environment. That is, when the stimulation comes in, that activates down to the cellular level whether parts of the DNA are going to be turned off or turned on to make a protein that's going to contribute to intelligence, it's going to contribute to you being able to deal with a cold, you know, that the whole immune system. Mm-hmm. So this is called epigenetics. So what was amazing that we've discovered is that this, we knew that the in utero, but we didn't know that there were these little chemical signals, messengers that could occur after babies were born. So that means as me thinking clinically, you know, what's the implication for this? That means that when a baby is looked after, picked up, whenever they cry, somebody's trying to figure out what's up with you? Yeah, I see you're upset. You're allowed to have a little upset, but I'm going to, I'm going to soothe you. What the, the, problem and another body of research came in was looking at this was the work of bruce McEwen. he looked and saw that when animals are highly stressed as would be happening when a baby's not being soothed when the when the physiology the body's reaction to stress like being cold being hungry being frightened it turns on a whole cascade, a whole bunch of stuff that is called our stress response system. And what is what we're now putting together is that when your stress response system is too turned on all the time, pressure, 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 when you are a very little child, It releases adrenaline and cortisol and all kinds of stuff goes on in the brain. And that sets a pattern in your brain of when you get stressed later on. You know, you may hyper uh, hyper react. That's really relevant for medicine because there's good uh, studies. We'll talk about the ACEs, but I want to bring all of this back to attachment. Mm -hmm. So here we've got... We know this brain is immature um, at birth. We need to create the environment to make the best, sturdiest house that we can. Oh, boy, we need to minimize stress as well because we know that when there's too much stress, there's differences happen in the inside of the brain. So we got to look after our babies really, really, really well. And we have to look after our babies and think about how can we create the conditions that they are 
maybe a little bit stressed because, you know, a little bit stressed is okay, but that they're not overly stressed. And so that's when we come back to, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, this is attachment. This is helping families and caregivers know that when that baby is upset, distressed, or crying, they're releasing a ton of neurochemicals, which if it happens all the time, can affect how their brain is developing. So when a baby sends out, so that's one thing. Now me, I'm a big suck. I don't really need the neuroscience to tell me that I have to pick up my crying baby, but it's pretty important for others, and including policymakers that we'll talk about. But you know, here we've got the science now saying what your grandmother told you to do with infants, what the First Nations people have been telling us to do for ages, and that is create an attachment relationship that is secure. Mm -hmm. That when the child is upset, distressed, overwrought, that they've got somebody in their court who is their best bet, as Dr. Deborah Mark McNamara talks about. And so that is, that's the relationship. And so when that happens consistently, the child develops a view of themselves that I am lovable. They learn how to regulate their own self. I am lovable. I have stuff I can offer and contribute as a toddler. And that's secure attachment. So they're well loved, but they're well responded to and secure, nurturing, positive relationships. But then sometimes this doesn't happen. And kids can develop and it doesn't happen for in two pathways. One is because the adult in their life is not responding consistently, positively, um, predictably to them. And so they can develop insecure, uh, an insecure form of attachment. But there's also, from the infant's perspective, sometimes infants sometimes genetic, sometimes um, uh, things like uh, autism or other um, uh, other conditions, um, they're very hard to read. So there can be attachment problem uh, there. I am not saying that all children with autism uh, don't have secure attachments because that just ain't so. They right. absolutely can attach. But you get the picture of secure attachment, which is what we want. So we don't talk about good or bad attachment. We talk about secure. You know, um, uh, the, the, the examples I think of, of when I came in and my son was just, oh, mom, 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 it's so good to see you. Um, I'm so happy you're here is to me that secure attachment. Why is it so important? Because longitudinal studies, so following people for a lot, the same people over a long, long period of time, shows us that when you have in your early years a secure attachment, the world feels like a good place for you. Those children on average grow up to have, on average, so not every single one, better relationships. They have, they do better academically. They do better 
behaviorally. So this architecture of the brain that's being constructed that is built by back and forth interactions and responding lasts a long time. It lasts a very, very long time. So it's why we really need to be supporting young families. At, uh, but here's the irony. At the time when their kids need them the most, look at how young families are stressed. Mm-hmm. So that means, and this is policy again, that means societally we need to be upping the ante. We need to be creating attachment connections in the community for our families. But that's that's me drifting away too far. Back to so that's why attachment is so important. Now I'm I don't want parents who are listening to think, oh my God, I let my kid cry it out once. Have I damaged them? <laughs> it's not. And I just did uh, 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 worked with a uh, author in the Motherly, the woman who or the the journal Motherly magazine. And um, we really emphasized that don't beat yourself up. Like we said, you do the best you can until you know better. And yeah. what we have is a beautiful brain that is able to re- be repaired. Relationship is the glue. Love can releases all kinds of stuff in the brain stuff, very technical, um, that actually we can repair. So to say, uh, you know, I didn't get that right. Come on, let's try this again. What was it you wanted, my boy? What is it you wanted? Um, So the beautiful thing of repair. And, you know, we see this with children in in childcare who have high quality childcare, who may have traumatic backgrounds and live in difficult situations, but they come in and they can attach. They can attach securely to their caregivers or teachers. I have so many stories about kids who started off without everything that I'm talking about and met somebody in school, a a teacher, a coach, that power of one we can't forget about. But I'm in the business of pulling all those powers of one together so that we make a change for kids. Yes. I think we could just go back and play that everything you just shared in those last several minutes as as such powerful messages around what why attachment is so important in the early years and how trauma and stress can impact that, but also bringing a level of of grace and compassion to that because parents and adults don't always get it right. And what can be more damaging over time is when those ruptures are unacknowledged and and we don't learn how to how to repair. And yet, even though a lot of that early brain brain development, there's so much happening in those first few years, the brain is still malleable and and changes can happen throughout the lifetime. Um, So so thank you for for sharing so much wisdom in your response to that question. You also mentioned the adolescent brain, which is also Mm -hmm. a critical time of growth and attachment also plays a big role in that. So can you share more about the adolescent brain? 
Yeah, yeah. That's please. a mystery. Like, <laughs> Those yeah, brains are... Yeah. Well, you know what? It, it, it remains a mystery because each, <laughs> each adolescent is, uh, is their own individual. But we know a little bit more uh, about the adolescent brain than we did before. So... Um, scientists knew about all of this big change that happens in the early years, and I mean neuroscientists and others. And uh, most of psychologists uh, have looked at for years and years and years about the behavior of adolescents. And they were thinking, oh, well, it's hormones. You know, they're going through this. It's because their hormones are changing this and that and this and that. And, you know, expect storm and stress and all, all of that lot. But then... Neuroscientists, people who study the brain with imaging, um, like MRI machines, scanned the same children over a number of years and realized, wow, it's not just in the early years that the brain is being sculpted and changed by the experiences, but massively is happening in adolescence. So what we say and know about the adolescent brain is that it is under construction. It's not hormones. Hormones are, play a big part. They may trigger the, the beginning of these brain changes. But what is happening is it's kind of like getting specialized. What kind of adult, what kind of, how am I going to be, what am I going to be interested in? All those kind of things that the, the brain Behaviorally, you see that, but inside the brain, you see that they're sculpting what doesn't get used, gets snipped away, just like we do see. We didn't mention that in the early years, but there's much more uh, specialization uh, snipped away. Um, uh, neurons that aren't used. Uh, the neurons become more myelinated, which is like insulation, um, and the neurons fire faster and, and when they get this repeated signal. So what, what it means is that what adolescents are being told what they are engaging in is also sculpting their brain. So two kind of scenarios. If they are in a high quality education system that believes that they are competent and capable and able to engage in community projects and, um, and uh, focus on learning how to be uh, how to communicate, how to think critically, how to collaborate, how to have compassion. If you're in a school system like that, your brain is wiring up very differently. If you're a kid who is busy with school, uh, in the school play, engaged in different clubs, um, has uh, coaches, little kids, your brain is being wired up differently if you have a, a child, a young person who is in the basement playing Fortnite, Grand mm -hmm. Theft Auto, mm -hmm. how the brain is being used 
It's becoming specialized. Let's get this. Okay, you're doing this over and over again. All right, let's wire that up. Okay, so you're not playing guitar anymore. We're going to knock off those neurons because now you are doing this fantastic project in pottery, whatever, whatever um, things. Now, you might think that that scenario I painted about your school is pie in the sky, but it's not. I visited schools like this. We need to we need to change the way we do school, but that's another whole podcast. Um, so <coughs> not only do we now know that the brain is changing, but that the different areas of the brain change, get sculpted away and remyelinate at different times. So the deep in the brain, the emotional system is developing its under construction way before the top part of the brain, we call the cortex and the prefrontal cortex particularly, is fully ready. So we've got fantastic ability to think and problem solve and be creative but when there's an emotional hit, like hot emotions, then there is not as much connection to the, oh, oh, stop, plan, think about this brain. This not That evolves over time. Your prefrontal cortex is the last area of the brain. You know, that's your planning, organizing, emotional ability, all of that stuff until 25 to 28 years of age. So we've got a long time to do it right with mm-hmm. our with our kids if we've had other, you know, other tussles. So that's a huge, huge knowledge for us to have that was not available before that neuroscience has opened up for us. And so we see fantastic, um, a fantastic development of, uh, so for example, one of my friends, Kim at reichel developed a tool called the Middle Development Instrument. So they look at kids in the uh, grade four, grade seven, and now uh, they're looking at teens. And they ask the kids things like, do you have a caring adult in the school? How many caring adults do you have in the school? So we've got the attachment research is coming in with the neuroscience saying relationships really count. So where I am in Hamilton, they did this middle development instrument and they said, holy moly, we thought the, the teachers had all said, this is this is a percentage of kids that we think we're important to. And the kids came in and guess what? Big difference. So they said, wow. The emotional well-being of the kids is really important. Their brains are under construction. Let's create conditions where they're engaged and they like school, but they feel safe, significant, like they're they're loved and, and, and validated, and they know why they're here. That's the work of my dear friend, Stephen DeGroote. So the neuroscience and the attachment, looking at relationship, 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 is changing how we think about adolescence. It is magnificent how we can start to change what kids experience in school, at home, in community, using this knowledge. Yes. And Dr. Jean, I've heard you talk a lot about 
the impacts of the pandemic on everything you just shared on brain development, on attachment, on our stress response system. You were such a voice during the pandemic on your YouTube channel, Dr. Jean Talks, when people needed it the most, when we were all feeling so just isolated and scared and you were out there just sharing this kind of knowledge and, and trying to help the adults learn better ways to calm themselves so that they could be there for children and meeting their needs. So I'm wondering, what are you seeing are the ripple effects from the pandemic and and what do we do? Yeah, well, do you know, it's um, the, first of all, there's no question that the pandemic has had a big impact on um, young people's mental health, on their behavioral development and the very little kids. There has been an effect. This, there are some who say there hasn't been, and I, I, I don't know what I don't know what they're reading. Uh, because it's very, very clear, and that's uh, uh, Dr. Tracy Viancourt um, has really looked steadily at, at this. So we know that it's the, the kids have taken a big hit. Um, hopefully it informs what we do should something else come around. But what we can do about it, and they've taken a big hit because there was huge social isolation that we saw um, in the very little kids, concern about their not being socialized with other adults. They're not being socialized with other kids. The parents are stressed. The community stressed. Yeah, they're on iPhones and you know on, on um, smartphones and tablets and all that kind of stuff. So the stress system of the world went up. Now, what we know about stress systems is it's not only about how much stress there is, but what do you do to bring that stress down to be manageable? So we know in some studies that when kids were able to stay connected, when they were able to figure out ways to do something productive, like there's a gorgeous, um, uh, a, a gorgeous story from Newfoundland and Labrador, the, um, uh, <clears throat> the school district there, where the kids connected over, uh, over, over Zoom, they developed a song with a local songwriter about what it was like in, um, uh, through that. So that diminishes the stress. So we know that the kids who had that opportunity, we know that their empathy, in fact, went up. Their citizenship desire went up because, you know, having to look out for Nana and Papa, that's a good thing to do. So two sides of the coin. What do we do about it? Well, I think, first of all, we need to absolutely recognize that relationships, connection, creating a sense of belonging has to be a priority because kids have lost and missed out on that. Mm -hmm. I worry when I hear the dialogues about, oh, learning loss, you know, there, there's big gaps. What are we going to do about it? Well, the gaps are going to get bigger if we do not say, <coughs> excuse me, what is our kids need? They need to feel safe, to feel significant, that they belong, that they've got connection, and they need what they're doing is important. 
So we can create conditions where kids, even though they may not be at the reading level or you know at the at the at the um, uh, science not, uh, acquisition of knowledge that they should be, but if we put them in a cradle or a container of high positive regard with high expectations. People who care about them, people who say, how can we do this in ways that you're interested in? We are going to see that learning loss diminish. In the early years, excuse me. In the early years, I worry if we don't educate in, in a, in a a way that people knew or know about, but more deeply, if we don't educate about the importance of social and emotional learning. And, and that to me is all about knowing where I, what my feelings are, knowing how to manage those feelings, knowing how to express those feelings is hugely important. I think little kids did not get that. That's why we're seeing so much disruption in kindergarten mm -hmm. these days. Now, there's also an issue of class size, but that's another, that's another podcast. Um, and, and so when those little ones are coming in, we need to say the number one thing we need to work on is you loving being here. What do we need to do so that you love coming to school? And I'll tell you, it ain't drill and kill about knowing their alphabet. It's about what do you love to do? Let's do that together. Oh, and by the way, how many of your friends are here sitting with us as we're playing with the blocks? I see one, two, three. Look at three. So you absolutely can do both. You absolutely can have playful learning and that way we're going to catch catch the kids up but you know catch the kids up to what is another whole discussion another <laughs> whole discussion so key concepts are relationship key concepts are what is the curriculum drive if it is, for example, in the early years uh, to get those kids ready for kindergarten or grade one, I mean, um, I got trouble in my mind with that. But if it is develop a lifelong learning and its ability to get along with others, take turns and, and have empathy when somebody falls down, the science is perfectly clear. Those, the kids in the early years where that is how they arrive at school, they do far, far better throughout um, um, uh, throughout life. So if we're talking about COVID, we need to reframe and say, well, what are the possibilities here? Not what are the problems, what are the possibilities here? What do we know to be true? And it is when the kids feel safe, they feel they belong, then they feel that they've got a purpose in being there and they're not disruptive. They're excited, they're engaged, all of those, all of those things. Yeah, I think if we can prioritize 
attachment. That's the possibility that that then and for the adults that are caring for them and teaching them and parenting them to also prioritize their own attachment needs with with themselves and with others so that their stress response systems can be in a place to really offer that to children. Yeah, well, it's such a good point that if we can help the adults and children's lives manage their stress more, better in ways that are that make them available and uh, be able to meet the needs of the kids, then the kids are going to do better. That was something that was absent in a lot. Um, so how do we help the adults with their stress? Well, we know absolutely that when you have a routine, when you have a rhythm in your life, the brain likes that. Mm-hmm. When you have good sleep, the brain likes that. When you have um, uh, connections to others, um, when you're generous, brings down the stress. When you go out running, brings down the stress. So there are many things that we can do as adults, have self-compassion. Mm-hmm. That brings down the stress. And, you know, remember, I'm a child psychiatrist, so I like that because it's how you then interact with the kids. And if we can, like the um, using the MDI, if we can have adults recognize the huge role that they play in children's lives as coaches, as teachers in that way, but we need to address the stress of the adults in the system for sure. Absolutely. So we've mentioned policymakers. What knowledge do they need translated so that they can better understand this and support healthy attachment and brain development? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a mixed it's a mixed bag asking about policymakers. Um, because one, they need, they're bombarded with so many things that they have to attend to. So we need to, and I think people have done this quite successfully, develop key messages. Here's the, here's the neuroscience in a nutshell. Here's why serve and return is so important. Here's why high quality childcare is so important. Here's why parental leave is, you know, so I could give you a list. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the um, Harvard Center on the Developing Child is a fabulous resource for that. They've got a great one on, on uh, for policymakers. Um, uh, uh, in Alberta, the, uh, the Alberta Family Wellness Initiative has got great resources there. But, you know, you can make all of these wonderful presentations. Um, uh, here's the science, but the receptor can either take up, as they have in British Columbia and other places, or they can ignore it and stick to their belief system rather than actually changing and being informed by the science. So it's not, we we need to find ways to figure out what is front of mind for the politicians, for for policymakers, what's front of mind? 
And for that, we need to know how are the parents, how are the adults in the system pressuring the the uh, the, the policymakers, not fringe groups, but the majority of the populace, and then work very, very diligently to create relationships with government to then at the right time and moment, you get the door opened to be able to create new ways of being. Like we had everything so beautifully aligned um, until in terms of early learning and care here in Canada until we got a change of government. Mm. So it's 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 a challenge. It's a challenge if the ideology in the policymakers is very very different than what yours is. So you have to find the arguments that resonate with who they think are their key uh, the key people. I must say, um, uh, I've I've had great highs working with policymakers. Uh, I was a, a, an advisor to uh, one of the premiers of Ontario and the Minister of Education with one government. And with another, I haven't heard a peep from them. Mm-hmm. And they're doing stuff that is very against the science of what children actually need to thrive and to flourish. So it's a, it's a two-sided, it's a two-sided coin, but we shall keep going. <laughs> That's all we can do. And and speaking of keep going, you've got some exciting things going on in your work. I'd love for our listeners and viewers to hear more. What are you working on right now? Well, I'm working in a number of areas. And, you know, as I think about it, so much is connected to attachment, Jenna. So with the Canadian Pediatric Society, um, we are um, working on increasing the knowledge of early relational health. How important to pediatricians these first months, these first years are for kids. They know it, but we want to deepen their knowledge of it and also tell them what resources there can be. So there's a fantastic resource from Mount Sinai in the US of uh, a Keystones, which is a curriculum for uh, residents, so people who are studying to be a specialist. Um, and, and that's fantastic. So increase the awareness and give them tools in their hand that they can actually use. So that's CP, the Canadian Pediatric Society. Also in the infant range, um, uh, I'm working with a number of communities in Ontario to develop resources like little videos for early childhood educators. And it's all about how do you build great, healthy social and emotional development in the early years. So we're getting at infant and early childhood mental health by teaching them how do you create it so it's 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 really going to thrive. And then if there is an issue, you'll know how we're we're going to let them you know educate them uh, about how to what to do, how to what 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 little one um, do we should should we be worried about? And we're also going to be developing that in English and French as well as with um, uh, developing resources for parents. So heart the heart of the matter, the first video that we're going to make after the introduction is absolutely about attachment. 
And then the other area that I'm working in is with school systems, where I'm really focusing on how can the education system be more responsive to the emotional well-being of children so that we can think and create an education system where kids are good at learning as well as good at life. That, that, that schools focus just as much on academic achievement. We, we want kids to learn. But what they learn, how they learn, and what's the, what's the environment around them? So that's the other big area. And attachment is huge. You can hear is attachment is huge uh, throughout that. Yeah. I love hearing the different systems of, of influence that that your work and your knowledge is is going to have so that's really exciting um and i can't believe how fast our time is just i know flying, flying by so is what do you envision for the future of developing attachments and brains and is there anything else you want to share with us too resources um how, how do you want to send us off dr jean you're right so you know i am optimistic about the future it's very easy to get very depressed you know we've got all of these crises going on but mm -hmm. there is a movement afoot that is saying that the well-being the emotional well-being of children is really important in our education system, with our parents. And there are more and more, I'm experiencing, like I'm doing work in California um, just now, and uh, there is, uh, in some areas, a real movement towards, let's really look at how our children can be well in academic brain power as well as in life power and so that 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 creates a feeling of optimism um uh, uh for me uh for sure but the other huge thing is that people are finally i think recognizing the power of the adolescent brain that uh, kids don't have to be like Malala or, or um, uh, you know, the young woman in in, um, in Sweden, but they can have a huge difference in creating the world that's going to be good for all kids. I can tell you story after story um, about kids who have stepped up and stepped in to help their community, um, uh, to create um, more accessible ways for, for example, um, a, a community garden. But they had a problem in the community garden that people were stealing the food. And so kids came up with an amazing solution to that. So instead of uh, people just coming in and taking what they wanted, they brought in some of the elders, the elderly, into the community and not all into the, the into the garden itself. They opened it at certain times and the elders were there. And not only did the people come in and get their stuff, but they also brightened up the, uh, the elders. Also, the elders got to communicate and say, well, you know, this is how you make this. This is how I love to do this. That was from the brains of a whole bunch of kids. 
adolescence. Mm -hmm. So we need to harness the power of adolescence. You know, the indigenous people that I have heard from, my dear friend Diane Longboat, says it's an indigenous gift, a teaching that says that the children will bring the medicine home. Mm. Well, I think our earth, our nature, absolutely needs healing at this point. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be the children. If we let them, if we create the ecosystem, all of the intersecting parts, I think that that's where real change can happen. Mm. Such a beautiful note of hope to end us on today, Dr. Jean. And it's no wonder they call you the knowledge translator and you have planted so many seeds in so many gardens. So thank you so much. It was truly an honor to be here with you today. And I wish you well in your continued sharing of all your wisdom and the work that you're working on. And I look forward to when we can talk or our paths can cross again. Oh, Jenna, I've really enjoyed it so much. And let me just share one little thing. Sure. People will hear that there was an airplane flying over as I was just finishing talking there. And I happen to know that that is a Lancaster plane, which is a very old plane. And how do I know that? Because my four-year-old grandchildren who are the twin boys are crazy about the Lancaster and airplanes. So I'm not the only knowledge translator out there. It runs in the family. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Let the children translate for us too. They'll tell us. We have so much to learn for them. So thank you so much, Dr. Jean. Take good care. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. And join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. For additional resources and training opportunities, visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of attachment theory. Attachment Theory.